Alright, so please open your Bibles to Romans 16. Today we are finishing the book of Romans. We're going to do verses 19 through 27. I am attempting to speak prophetically about the future here, um, but I may be wrong (laughs) because of lack of self-control and the ability to be succinct. We're going to be getting into, at the end of Romans, Paul gives some really important important stuff that is sometimes we skip past because we often read the ending of a letter not realizing how it ties into everything else that we've already read in the letter. And so I want to, without doing an overview of Romans, I did that already, There's that's online, but I just want to remind us of a few things. We're also going to get into an archaeological confirmation of the Bible. That, I just want to show you that in random places as you're reading the scripture, <clears throat> there's times where archaeology speaks to the thing that we're reading. And we don't know this, obviously, unless we're familiar with what's going on in that world. Um, So setting the context a little bit, remember this, the book of Romans, uh, Paul wrote to the Romans and he had not visited Rome. And so this changes the way he writes to them, right? When he writes to Timothy, he's writing to like a a, a young leader in the church about how how to run the church of God. But Timothy had traveled with him. Timothy knew the gospel and all this stuff. When uh, he writes to other churches like Corinth, he'd been there, he'd stayed with them. Now he's writing a letter to his well-known associates about their walk with the Lord, some compromises they've had. But when he writes to the Romans, it's totally different. And I love this about Romans. He's writing so that he might like really well explain the whole gospel and the Christian life. And so it's such an essential book in our Bibles, the book of Romans. It's like, here you go. This is the gospel, how it ties into the Old Testament, how it ties into the new, how we're saved, how Abraham was saved, how the prophecy is there. Here's the gospel presented towards the Jews, the gospel presented towards the Gentiles. Here's how God's plan unfolds throughout scripture. And then here's the Christian life. Here's walking in the spirit. Here's um, you serving the Lord in your local fellowship. Here's keeping Christian unity. Here's how to deal with government. Interestingly enough, here's how to deal with government. Here's how to deal with Christian life issues, um, convictions for when you guys don't agree on issues. Like here's this stuff. So he just kind of keeps giving more and more stuff. And it really unpacks so much of what you need to know for all of Christian life in this one book in Romans. So this is, it's a massive, wonderful book, a detailed gospel presentation. The philosophical reasoning in the book of Romans is one of the things that impresses me the most about the book. There's like deep thoughtful, careful philosophy in Romans. Now, some think um, philosophy equals worldly philosophy, but that's not the case. The, the, see, biblical philosophy or Christian philosophy is, I think, I think it's the only philosophy that actually makes sense because it's grounded ultimately on God. And so from God flows all of reality. This is the best of philosophy. And here we have it in Romans. So I've, I've tried to share some of <clears throat> at least my best understanding of these things. It, it gets deeper than me, that's for sure. But I've shared my best understanding of it as we've gone through. Um, it talks about instructions for sanctification, for obedience, for spiritual health, for unity, warnings about false teachers, and to keeping to sound doctrine and how to handle it when people try to invade into the church to lead people astray, either morally or doctrinally, to lead them astray. And so now here we are, Romans 16, verse 19. He just finished the warnings about false teachers and says in verse 19, For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. This is actually an interesting place to start because uh, Romans 16, 19 is a good example of a verse that almost doesn't make sense out of context. (laughs) For your obedience has become known to all. Um, I wouldn't know what to do with that statement, except the context is, 
He just warned them against false teaching and people who embrace sin and influence others to sin and divisive individuals. So these are like the three things Christians are to watch for, right? False doctrine, um, sin in my life or those who are trying to influence me to sin, and also divisive people. So to keep and let doctrine be the thing that shows me who's who. And then he, after telling them to be warned against those things, he says, your obedience has become known to all. I think what he's saying is, I'm warning you about false teachers, people drawing you towards sin, because guess what? You are known as Christians. And so that puts a bullseye on you. That, I think, is the context of your obedience has become known to all. Where there are followers of Christ, there is a target, right? God looks and sees his, his church, you know, being washed and sanctified and being this beautiful thing. Well, the world looks and they see a mission field because the world wants us to be more like them. It's funny how they say, you know, Christians, we're, we're sick of you trying to be missionaries and change everyone to be like them. Instead, you should change and be like us. <laughs> the irony is the world really does look at Christians like a mission field. They want Christians to change, change your theology, change your practice. You can still call yourself Christian, but be, the, be our version of Christian, the one that we like. That's okay. The world looks at you and sees a mission field. Satan looks at you and he sees something else. He sees a bullseye. You know, God sees his church. Satan sees a bullseye. He sees his target. Consider the following. In fact, if you would turn there, Matthew chapter 13. This is the parable of the sower where Jesus tells this this parable of a man who goes out to sow into into his field. So seed, good seed in his field. And while he sleeps, somebody comes in and sows bad seed. I think there's something interesting about this that relates to the idea that you're the target of of Satan in a very real way. So Matthew 13, verse 24, it says, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Now, simply put, I'm not going to do a full study on this parable, but simply put, tares are things that look very much like wheat until they're fully grown, and then you start to see the flowering, and when the flowers, when it when it's really budding and flowering, you go, oh, that's not wheat; those are tares. Tares, you could try to make food out of tares like you do with wheat, except it would have a mild poison in it, because tares will put you to sleep. They have like a sed- a sedative type of of a of a, uh, of a thing going on, which I think there's some spiritual parallels that are going on there. So this 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 enemy comes and sows tares amongst the wheat and goes his way. And then in verse twenty six. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. They were there, but it became obvious because that's the season uh, for it to be clear from the budding. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Do you want us to go and gather them up? And he's like, No, 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 let them grow together. And at the end, at the end. And then Jesus explains this parable, if you keep reading. He explains the parable is the seed is, is ultimately referencing God sowing the gospel into people's lives, people getting saved. And now his church is this field of wheat and we're the wheat and the terrors are the sons of the in, the sons of the enemy, basically the, those who are ungodly, unsaved individuals. Now here's the thing I just want to point out. Where did the enemy sow his seed? Wherever God sowed his. That's the thing that kind of gets me. The kingdom of heaven is like this. Like, here's God. He goes out, sows the seed. People get saved. People are, are, are born again. Their lives are transformed. They're following Jesus. And Satan's like, I need to infiltrate that. So he sows his tares amongst the wheat. 
And they'll look like Christians, perhaps claim to be Christians. Um, not that it's up to me to figure out who's who. That's not my, that's not my calling. Uh, nor am I able, <laughs> ultimately, to make that discernment. Nor do I want to. In all honesty, my, my default position is, if I don't know, I assume you're a believer. If I have good reason to doubt it, I evangelize you <laughs> in love and in compassion and try to share Christ with you. But, um, but if I'm not sure, I just, I just grant that someone's a believer because I, I hope I get the same courtesy. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure there's plenty of people that aren't sure about me. Um, so the, the tares are sown amongst the wheat. But this, this continues. In, in Luke 22, we read this. Jesus says this about Simon Peter. It says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So we see Simon, and we, we actually experience his whole dramatic betrayal or denial, I should say, of Christ, and then his restoral from Christ. Is that a word, restoral? It's just, I mean, restoral. You don't know that word? Um, <laughs> so he's, he's restored. So we see, we experience all this in the scriptures, right? But Jesus gives us behind the scenes look at this, is that while there were people going like, hey, aren't you one of the disciples? Satan was at work. There were spiritual battles going on. How is this happening? Was this an internal mental attack? Was there some... I don't know. But we know that this was a... A target was on Peter. A target was on him. Satan was asking for him. I want him. I want to mess with him. Now, Jesus, God knew his full plan. And so he's like, yes, you're going to go through this. It's going to be tough. But great stuff will come out of it. And when you return, strengthen your brother. I mean, Jesus predicts the, the failure and the return and the fruit from the trial, all there in that one passage, which is kind of beautiful and encouraging to me. Um, even Christians who feel they've really failed, um, yet there was a purpose that God had for it. It doesn't excuse my failure, but get up and keep serving and strengthen others with the things you've learned. But that same Peter, the same Peter who is tempted by Satan or, or attacked by Satan in some way, 1 Peter 5.8, that same Peter said this, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Satan is like looking for prey. Lions, the way they look for prey is they often look for the weak, the small, the young, the slow, and they go after them. Us in our hardship, us in our weakness. In fact, after Satan tempted Jesus and for the, the 40 days and nights and all that, then Satan's tempting him. And afterwards it says he left until an opportune time. So after Jesus is like, get out of here. <laughs> and it says he left until an opportune time. I think, I think that's really profound. He was waiting until he had that moment of weakness that he saw where he felt like he could pounce. And so along with our physical trials and our difficulties in life often come spiritual assaults. It's at those times when you're just, this isn't spiritual. This is just physical. I'm just going through hard times. It's like, yes. And the enemy knows that. <laughs> and so the enemy's rushing in for that opportune time. Jesus is there. He's in the garden. He's, 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 you know, sweating great drops of blood. You know, this is an opportune time. This is, this is a chance. Um, there's more. Second Corinthians 11, three says this, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. So your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. That now this doesn't necessarily say Satan's the one corrupting your minds, but, but it, I feel like it's implied 
as Satan deceived Eve, so your minds might be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ, the singleness of following Jesus and knowing him. So the tares amongst the wheat, um, they are the world entering the church and watering things down and putting us to sleep, so to speak. The, the attack of the enemy upon us at times, we should know this. When your obedience is known to all, when you're serving Jesus with all you've got, when you're following God with everything you have, you can expect that there's a bullseye on you. This doesn't mean that I self-righteously act like everything bad that happens to me is persecution. My car ran out of gas. Satan's attacking me. Like, no, you're just, you were irresponsible most likely. <laughs> that's probably what happened. Um, but but that, that's not to say that Satan doesn't actually attack us. Very much so in a very real way. And we can expect this. But we also know this, that Satan had to ask for Peter. God allowed this. Right? Just as he had to ask to go after Job. And God allowed it for a purpose and for a season and all that. So this might freak you out. Um, perhaps this scares you a little bit. Don't let it. For the same reason that firefighters don't get scared when they hear about a fire. Firefighters have been training and preparing for this moment, right? And I don't think that they're sadists when the fire alarm goes off and they find out about some big fire and they get excited. I think they're just thinking, look, this fire was going to happen one way or another, but I'm a firefighter and I've been preparing for this moment. And they suit up and they get ready and they go out there. Now, if, if they're the firefighter that's cowering in the corner when they hear about the fire, they're like, oh, I have to go to the bathroom. Like, you know, or, I'm going to call my mom. And they take off. Then obviously something's wrong. But us as Christians, we don't realize like we are there with the armor of God to fight the spiritual battle. Yet when you're being attacked, this is the time to buckle down. This is the time to step forward. This is the time to go out. It's, it's not the gates of heaven that are being stormed here. Jesus said the gates of Hades will not prevail. Whose gates are being stormed? <laughs> That's right. It's the enemies. So when we look at Satan, Satan may look at me and see a bullseye, right? Your obedience has become known to all, so don't worry. So there's going to be false teachers and people trying to lead you astray. But when, when Satan looks at me, he sees a bullseye. But when I look at him, what do I see? I see a bullseye. The world might look at me and see a mission field, but when I look at the world, what do I see? I see my mission field. And so go for it get to it. It's like for a time such as this, you know, step up and, and step out and live your life. Like, I think we are craving as, as humans, we are craving for our lives to have real purpose and real meaning beyond just the general activities of our day. And this is where, this is where it, we find it ultimately is in the spiritual battles that we have in our obedience to Christ and in our outreach to the world and our building each other up in Christ. I think this is a big deal. So, um, then he says, at the end of verse 19 or partway through, for your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf. He's excited at the idea that people know that in Rome, there are a group of following Christians who love Jesus. He knows they'll also be attacked, but he's glad on their behalf. He's happy about it because if that target is on you, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just something that you have to know about. And then he continues, but I want you to be wise in what is good and, and simple concerning evil. We learned a song when I was young. When I was young, oh, those were the days. And we learned a song that was, be excellent at what is good, be innocent of evil. Right? For the God of peace will soon crush Satan. And you'd stomp underneath your feet. Huh, and you'd slam your feet on the ground back. <laughs> it, was, it was cheesy, yes, but, <clears throat> but, the, but it made me remember this verse. Um, be wise in what is good, be simple concerning evil. I think these are the two instructions for those who have a bullseye on them. 
and for those who are at the mission field of the world, Christians. Be wise in what is good. This is actually, both of these things I think are taken from Jeremiah 4.22. Jeremiah 4.22 says, For my people are foolish, they have not known me. They are silly children, and they have no understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. So they were the opposite in Jeremiah's time. And we're told to be wise at what's good, simple concerning evil. Being wise here, it's, it's like being excellent or skillful in something. Um, <clears throat> back in the day, Moses uh, gave, uh, excuse me, let me, I th- now in, the days of, in the days of Solomon, when they were building the temple, this is the, not the tabernacle, but the temple, God gave wisdom to the skilled craftsmen. So they had specific wisdom for their task, like working with this particular material in order to build the temple, like sewing things or, or building stuff. <clears throat> and in the same sense, we're to have wisdom or particular skill at doing good. Like, I'm good at good. You might be like, oh, so you're a goody two-shoes. That's really not the point. This isn't about self-righteousness. This is about being skilled at doing the right thing and understanding what is good. This kind of skill has it, it has a, a head element to it, and it has like a hands element to it. I understand what is right and wrong, so I have good teaching, but I also am able to perform what is right over what is wrong, and so I have good living. Um, I think this in the in the armor of God is the breastplate of righteousness. I've heard teaching that the breastplate of righteousness is just God's given you his righteousness. That's all it is. But I think that there's an element of this where it's not me being righteous to earn my salvation, but rather me following Jesus to protect myself in this world. Because how, how will, how will sin impact my life as a Christian? Well, in devastating ways. So be wise in what is good and then be simple concerning evil. And I'll be honest, this is probably of the two, the one that really stands out to me the most. Because being wise at what is good seems obvious, but being simple at what is evil, that word simple could be translated a couple different ways, untainted, unmixed, or pure. It doesn't necessarily mean completely unaware of evil. So it's like, you're, you're, the school calls, you want to hear what your son did today? Nope, simple concerning evil, and he's hanging up the phone. That's not the application. The application is that I'm not allowing that evil to touch me. Do you know what I mean? Like where it mixes, I become mixed with it. And this is, I think, where the battle lies for us nowadays, big time. Especially, we don't live in a Christian culture and surrounded by Christian environment in every way. At least I don't. And I don't think any of you guys do. And, uh, and we're surrounded with constant outreach from the world into our lives. And this is not where I try to dump my convictions on you in any way. But this is where I just call us to say, hey, be untainted when it comes to evil. Be unmixed with the world. Be pure. This is, this is the thing that will help you from the bullseye and the mission field <laughs> impact that the world and the enemy have in your life. <clears throat> and then verse 20 goes on and says, And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. And this is like one of the most ironic passages in the Bible, I think. The God of peace will crush Satan. <laughs> it's like he's peaceful and he's crushing the enemy. I think that's really interesting. There's, there's a gun back in the day that, that sort of ruled the West for a while uh, called the peacemaker. <laughs> there's a phrase, peace through superior firepower. That's the, that's the phrase as it, as it stands. And as long as evil is in the world, it's when good people have more power <laughs> that there's peace. That's pretty much how it works. And so God, who is a God of peace, we've experienced his peace, but he is going to crush Satan. And this is an allusion to Genesis 3. 
right? He shall bruise uh, your, the seed's heel, and the seed, which ends up being Jesus, ultimately will crush his head. This is going to be the fulfillment of this from Genesis 3, then all the way to Revelation, where we have Satan finally cast into the lake of fire. He's cast out forever. So he's crushed, he's destroyed. But that's what's going to happen. So we fight our battle from this perspective. I've got to keep my heart unmixed from the world and from ungodliness. I've got to be wise at what is good, learn, learn good teaching and theology, and live out the Christian life in sincerity. But then all I have to do is wait on this whole Satan issue. Because God's going to crush him. God will do the crushing. It'll be under my feet, though, which is interesting to think about. Under my feet. Feet here has to do not just with the device of crushing, I think. Uh, I think feet here has to do with the fact that you are over someone. If they're under your feet, they're submitted. They no longer have a place of authority or control in your life. Satan's ability to impact or control you or anything in the world will end. So under our feet, remember, we, are, we will be ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ, which is amazing to think about. We will not just be citizens in the kingdom. We're like royalty. Royalty in the kingdom. The dominion that Adam lost is restored in Christ to us, plus some. <laughs> it's better. It's not just restored. The world will not just be restored to an Eden-like condition, but something better than that. If we read the actual text of scripture, um, it seems like it's, 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 it's much improved, right? It's, it's muy bueno. That's French. You wouldn't understand. So the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. And I think the idea of shortly here um, may just have to do with having a present awareness of it happening. That there's like this, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. In a sense, it's happening all the time because God is constantly, we're going from victory to victory in Christ. Even the attacks the enemy has on my life, I gain victory, you know. The story of Peter and his struggles ends up being a massive blessing to us. How many of you guys have read about Peter and him being tried, sifted as wheat, and found incredible help in your life because of it. You know, and in a sense, that was God crushing Satan under Peter's feet. <laughs> you know, so there's that there's that sort of moment by moment thing of God's deliverance and victory. And then there's the final, final thing where it happens, and we read about that in Revelation. Then in verse 21, he says, Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, and J uh, Jason, and Sosipater, or Sosipater, he was the one saucy dad, um, Peter's dad. Anyway, my countrymen greet you. This is the same Timothy. This Timothy's the same guy that we read about in First and Second Timothy. And it's neat to see how these people, we learn more about their lives as we read about these sorts of things. Um, I, I'm not going to get into every name, but you're welcome to, there's actually more to know about Jason and, and Saucy Dad. Uh, but I'll let you study that on your own. Uh, verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Now this is really interesting because this is what's called, you want to hear the fancy word for the guy that wrote the epistle for Paul? The fancy word is amanuensis. Amanuensis. Yes, an amanuensis, or a secretary, right? He wrote the things that Paul told him to write. This was actually somewhat normal. We see this happening several times, and we read about other guys that are doing the same sorts of things. Um, so Tertius, he goes, I wrote this epistle. Now we know the epistle opened by saying Paul. An apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. We read about Paul writing, but then he's... And then we also read in Galatians, where Paul wrote at least the ending of Galatians. He goes, see with what large letters I write to you? So they knew that was Paul's writing. Maybe that was... Maybe he's writing just like mine. Whenever I write on a whiteboard for the youth ministry, it's like... 
It's like it's unintentional comedy. But yes, what large letters and ridiculous letters. So this is interesting because of this. This actually enters into the issue of apologetics. Um, there are there's a popular sort of wave going going around right now where they're saying it's it's online where they're saying that several books of the New Testament were forged, were not written by Paul, were not written by Peter, were not written by those guys. And one of the reasons they have for saying this is they go, well, the Greek style's not the same across the letters. So First and Second Peter are an example. They take First and Second Peter and they say. Oh, the Greek style, like we would know in English reading this, right? The Greek style of First and Second Peter's, the style's too high in one and too low in the other for them to be by the same author. But we see that this was this was something they did, is they would have these guys help them with the style of their letter. That's what the amanuensis did, is he would either write just verbatim what you said, or he would work with you. How do you want to write that? How do you want to word that? And then it would come out. So almost like an editor helping to improve the material. Now, how does this affect the doctrine of inspiration? Well, it doesn't affect it at all. Like <laughs> the whole idea is, Paul didn't write and and, the, and have the text inspire because he wrote it with his own hand because Paul was so amazing. It's inspired because the Holy Spirit inspired the process by which we got it and then gave it to us. So we see the Holy Spirit is writing and impacting these things. Um, but I think that this issue of an amanuensis is important when we when we tackle the topic of whether the New Testament texts were forged. It's not the only issue. There's a whole lot to be talked about in it. But it's one thing that the skeptics often forget. And they just say things like, I've heard them say it. Well, I don't think there was any amanuensis. I don't think they used any, any amanuensis. They couldn't afford such a thing. And you're like, I, Tertius, who wrote this, like, it's in the ancient text and you just ignore it. Maybe you have a motive there. That's other than for truth, you know, when you're, it's like right there in the text and there's several indications that they used these sort of secretaries in different books of the New Testament, several. And so I think we, uh, we have to realize as Christians, when we hear skeptics attacking the Bible, you have to notice what evidence they ignore and what evidence they, they, they focus on. Because sometimes what they do is they pull out of, out of, here's all the information and they just grab a third of it. And they make a skewed case for their side. And you study more, you learn more, and you, you hopefully get better answers. Um, so verse 23, this, this uh, says, Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. And Quartus, a brother. We did greetings from uh, or to the people in Rome. We already talked about that, except for Phoebe. She was the first because she probably carried the letter. And there was greetings to the people in Rome. This is greetings from the people in Corinth that are heading out to the people in Rome. So that's Gaius. He's the host. We read about him in 1 Corinthians 1.14, actually. This is probably the same Gaius. Um, he's there being greeted in Corinth. He's Paul's host, so Paul stays with him, or possibly Tertius. Um, and he's the host of the whole city, or the whole church, excuse me, which probably means that he had like a big estate and he had the, the the gathering of believers they would come a massive group of christians would come and they would all gather there from from corinth at his place so maybe it was the first city megachurch was in gaius's estate or house or something like that i don't know um then erastus he's a treasurer of corinth and this is where the archaeology comes in more apologetics for you guys so i hope you're ex as excited about that as i am erastus is said to be the treasurer of corinth now, let me give you background so you can understand why this matters. Um, in the 1700s, 
the popular view of the New Testament text was that they were all written way later. None of them were written by the authors that, that Christians think, dumb Christians, you know. And none of them were. So it became very popular and became sort of the normal school of thought that like John, Mark, Matthew, Luke, Acts, all of it was written like 250 AD, like way later, way later, maybe in the 100s, but certainly not in the first century. Now, because of discoveries, we now know that all of the New Testament was written for sure within the first century. It was written within the lifetime of the apostles. And we keep getting discoveries that keep pushing those dates back earlier and earlier, uh, closer and closer to uh, the time where Christians would have just assumed it was written. So what do you know? But in this case, the typical college professor, the guys I've encountered, at least on campuses, they're not aware of what's happened since the 1700s. They're not, they're, their criticisms often come from like 1753 instead of like 2018. And so they still think things like this. So these archaeological confirmations, little pieces of archaeology that say, hey, here's evidence that this was contemporary and real in the first century. These are important things. Um, I remember in college being in a piano class and the, and the piano teacher attacking the Bible with like 200 years outdated Bible attacks that are ignoring, you know, modern knowledge. Um, I remember being in my logic and critical thinking class and on the first day of school, teacher says, raise your hand and tell us your name and tell us something about you. And what did I do? Like a good Christian? I said, my name is Mike and I'm a Christian. And from that moment, me and him were like at odds with each other. I was always respectful and kind and gracious and stuff. But from that moment, he like set to it to try to unravel my faith that semester. Um, and it worked. No, I'm just kidding. It didn't work. <laughs> uh, what it did was it caused me to go do research and actually started doing more apologetics stuff because of that. So what, how does Erastus, the treasure of the city, factor into all this stuff? Um, well, excavations at Corinth in the early 1900s, like 1923 or 26, something like that, they were doing excavations at Corinth, and they found a large area of pavement that was just a big, big paved area, a big open area. And on the pavement was this massive inscription. It was something like seven or eight feet long. And it said on it, Erastus, in return for his idolship, uh, which is like a political position, laid the, uh, this pavement at his own expense. So it had his name. It said that he did this in return because they would, he, was, he paid for something for the city to buy a, a political position. And that was not considered bribery. That was just, that was, he was, they were bragging about it. They were like, that's what you do. You know, it wasn't like they voted. And so he had done this. And, and when did it date to? When does that pavement date to? About 50 AD. And what city? Corinth. And where's this guy from? Corinth. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. I just think that's kind of cool. Because when you're making up fake books, writing hundreds of, 200 or, or 150 years later, you don't write about these real people. And yet over and over again, we read about these real people. We could talk about Gaius sometime as well. There's another interesting story there. So, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, there's more to it than that. If you want to go deep into that issue, then there's a debate on whether idol and idolship is the same as being the treasurer and all this other stuff. But And I feel that the, that debate is easily dealt with, but I won't try to get into all that today. I just thought it was a nice little bonus. So... Um, verse 24, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Um, this might be from Tertius. 
it might be churches. Hey, I churches greet you. Then this guy greets you. This guy greets you. And the grace of our Lord be with you because it's a repeated phrase. Um, it's already been said earlier, just a few verses, just a few verses different, a few verses back. So this might actually be from churches just saying, I grace of our Lord be with you. This seems to have been a, a, a typical greeting back then, a typical Greek greeting, charis, grace be with you. The difference is it's the grace of Jesus. And it's like the world. The world often says things like grace, grace upon you, bless you, good, good vibes, sending out good vibes your way. But with Christians, we actually have like a basis for the grace, a basis for the blessing. And it's Jesus Christ. And so the grace of Christ be with you all. Then in verse 25, he says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. This would be Paul. <laughs> this would be Paul definitely speaking here. And he says a lot. It's a mouthful. It's like like three paragraphs of content smashed together into one little thing. So let's look at it a little bit. The first thing is, is he's saying that God is able to establish us, to establish us, which means you're being grounded. You're, you're built on the rock, so to speak. Do you feel established today? I wonder as a Christian, do you feel like you're really grounded and established, um, spiritually strong in that sense and sufficient? Well, this is how you can be established, right? Able to establish you according to, and then he mentions a few things. My gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ, and the mystery. Let's talk about those three things for a second. Paul says he can establish you. God, God will establish you. He does. He's able to establish you through my gospel. This is the foundation for Christianity is the gospel. Now, some people attack, and I remember hearing this in college too. They attack the idea that, that Paul had the same gospel as the other Gospels, the gospel givers, you know, the other, Matthew, Mark, those guys, Peter, James. Um, and one of the ways they do it is they attack his phrase. He says, my gospel. As though, I'm sorry for snickering to myself here, because this is, this is the kind of terrible butchering of the Bible that I hear from skeptics a lot of the time, where they're like not even taking it seriously. Like they ignore the fact that Paul straight up says, we have the same gospel. <laughs> He's not trying to establish my gospel like it's different. But they sometimes will grab phrases like this. Paul says, my gospel, what he really means is his own version of the gospel is totally different from everybody else's. Um, but that's obviously not the case. That's just something that a skeptic would like to believe because it would make their case against Christianity really nice. So in reality, when Paul says my gospel, he also says the gospel. He also says the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, the gospel according to grace. They're all the same gospel. They're all the same gospel. Um, but... What he said earlier in Romans was, I wanted to write to you that you might bear some fruit from my ministry and my calling to share the gospel with the Gentiles. And so he's, I think, hearkening back to that. <clears throat> so you can, you can be established through this. And then it's the preaching of Jesus Christ. The preaching of Jesus Christ establishes you. Then he goes on. He says, the mystery kept secret. These to me seem to be all the same thing. It's like synonyms. Paul's gospel is the preaching of Christ. The preaching of Christ is this mystery that's been revealed. Now this mystery is a mysterious word. Let me say something about this because countless groups will take verses like this and rip them out of context and take the phrase mystery. And this is not skeptics anymore. This is cults and false religious teachers. 
and they like to take these things. For instance, I was recently preparing for a video I'm going to do on uh, a guy who's they call Christ Ansong Hong, who supposedly was Jesus's second coming. Sorry, you missed it. Um, it happened many years ago. He already died, but. But I was preparing for this and I was trying to think, I was trying to find out what are the, what's the evidence they offer to like prove that this guy's really Christ? This guy's this, there's now it's completely unbiblical in every way. I'll, I'll, I'll do, be doing a video on that soon. But in their video, one of their propaganda videos, they say, it may seem hard to believe that, that Christ on Tong Hong is the second coming of Jesus. But the Bible says that it's a mystery. Like that proves something. Now, let me take a second and explain why this is not how you can use this passage. The mystery in verse 26 is now made manifest. Meaning that the mystery he's talking about is a mystery that has already been revealed. And that's actually what the Greek word means. This is where sometimes the Greek matters. Here's, here's what it means. Mystery, something that was hidden, but has been revealed. Not mystery like, riddle me this, Batman, and it's not revealed, you know. Not like, not like that. Like, what's in his pocket, precious? Like, that's not the kind of mystery. It's a mystery fully discovered, fully disclosed. That's the mystery of Christ. And then what was he really talking about? Verse 26, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. So it's made manifest according to scripture and all the nations know it now. The mystery was fully revealed and well known in the first century. Some guy that comes later in 1950, 60, 70 doesn't get to fulfill this mystery because it's something that first century believers were well acquainted with and fully understood. Anybody else would be an imposter. I really cannot stress too much um, <clears throat> the genius of prophecy. Uh, I think that prophecy is something that we've neglected in, in the church. Not entirely, not like everybody has, but overall, maybe we've neglected this somewhat. And we've got to like remind ourselves that one of the foundational things in the Christian faith is the tying of the Old and New Testament together through prophecy. To realize that prophecy is something that ultimately speaks of Jesus. And so it's part of knowing who he is, is understanding some of the prophecy in the scripture relating to him. And it's such genius. This is why nobody today can come and pretend to be Jesus. Because there is no prophecy that they're going to fulfill. Unless they come I don't know, like on the clouds with judgment and every eye sees them. <laughs> like, unless they come like it's prophesied, then you can't trick me. So it's just the genius, the genius of prophecy. And, and um, prophecy, it, it feels like such a big subject because we go like, you know, 67% of the Bible's prophecy. I don't know if that's accurate or not. Like, I don't know. How'd you figure that out? But, but let's say it's 67% of the Bible's prophecy and you get overwhelmed by it. What I want to encourage you is at least have one prophecy, just one, to start with one that you could actually take a stranger to in conversation and go, did you know this was written before Jesus came? And take him to Isaiah 53 or take him to Psalm 22 and, and be able to walk them through it. At least have one. And let the Lord work as you share his word and you open the scriptures to show them who Jesus is and just let, let the Holy Spirit do a work in them. But know this, that it was God's design that prophecy would be there with the, the mystery and then the fulfillment of it through Christ. Um, pretty powerful stuff. So, so God can establish us according to the gospel. That's, that's all that's needed. And then according, it says, to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, there, the end of verse 26, this is saying... God is commanding all nations to come under Christ. 
obedient to the faith. This is an important point as well. Sorry, the Bible is full of important points, and I like to point them out. Um, the faith, remember what the phrase the faith means? Generally speaking, when you see the faith with the, with the article T-H-E in front of it, it's different than faith. Faith is my belief, right? The faith is what I believe. It's my doctrines. It's my teachings of Christianity. I believe there is one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe that mankind has sinned against God and that we have a future judgment that's coming and that the only way we can be forgiven and transformed is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and we need to put our faith and trust in him. These are doctrines of Christianity. This is the faith. And what does it say here at verse 26? That the... that. <clears throat> That this mystery has been made manifest to all nations according to God's commandment for the obedience of the faith. All nations obedient to the faith. What I'm saying here is that Christians by nature are a missionary religion. And the world wants to say, um, it's so messed up that Christian missionaries would go into some foreign country and try to take away their religion and their culture. And I'll just say this. I don't care about your culture. Keep your culture. I don't want to import or export my culture anywhere. But the faith is not a cultural reality. It's just reality. I mean, there's, there's a group called LifeWater that goes into foreign countries and they try to educate the people on how to have sanitary, healthy water supplies. Now, couldn't I respond to them? You know what? For generations, they've been drinking this nasty water with diseases and stuff in it and you're trying to change their culture. That's very insensitive of you. You with your, with your Western superiority complex. I just, I just want to ignore that person and move on. Okay, that's fine. Like you can, you can soapbox preach against people who try to save people's lives. That's go ahead and do that. That's fine. Now we're going to go and we're going to teach these people. I don't care about changing their culture. If elements of their culture are killing them, then those things need to change. And any culture where religious like lies are embedded in the culture, those lies have to change. Christianity is a missionary religion where we try to bring people to Christ. Obedience, all nations, obedient to the faith. Because it's true, because it really does bring forgiveness. And because I think you knowing the true God is more important than you worshiping a false one. Shock and awe. You know? And so as, <clears throat> as Christians, don't absorb this worldly mentality that makes us ashamed to spread our faith. Because it's true. Then in verse 27... Finally, we conclude the book of Romans. To God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. God alone wise. One of the things that has blown me away in our study of Romans has been the wisdom that is in the text that is revealing God's wisdom. And I'm just, I mean, legitimately blown away. Like his perfect plans for how to deal with like weird things that pull us apart like division and conviction issues as we talked about that his plan of how he how he redeems us and saves us he's committed all to judgment that he might have grace on all like that that in his wisdom he's made it so that creation itself screams that there's a god so that men are without excuse give us an internal conscience to bring us awareness of our of our sin and our need for him just the wisdom the wisdom of prophecy right that that prophecy becomes a way of proving the Bible true. I hate when people say things like, you can't prove the Bible and I can't, you can't prove it's true and I can't prove it false. And wait, wait, stop. Yes, I can. <laughs> 
You can accept it or reject it, but yes, we can. Prophecy is the proof. It's the most beautiful, timeless proof for uh, the, the fact that God has spoken, and we have that in the scripture. The genius of God, the absolute genius of God. And so where does it end? Romans, how does the book end? Worship. To God be glory. Alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. And that's how it ends. It doesn't actually end with grace and peace to us. And I think it's notable that it ends with glory to God because that is a higher thing than grace to me. Is glory to God. And how could it be any other way? I mean, how could, how could I make my life as a human the focal point of reality? Like I'm the most important thing in this world. And ultimately what pleases me, what brings me happiness, what brings me joy is the number one goal. Like this is just self-deification really. But God's glory becomes the thing. So as, as we close this book, <clears throat> let that be the thing that just echoes in your mind. That the glory of God is the ultimate purpose of you and of me. And of the gospel. This is one area where I think the Calvinists have it completely right. They love talking about the glory of God. And I get excited when they do. I, I, we all should be talking more about God's glory. God's glory. That's what this ultimately comes down to. When you look at the world and all you see is humans, it's hard to make sense of everything. But when you look at creation from the perspective scripture gives us, and you see God's glory being revealed in every aspect, in hardships, in difficulties, in pains, in allowing evil for a time, in judging and punishing it, in redeeming and saving those who want him, in making the gospel available to all. You see God's glory in all this. It changes everything. So um, <clears throat> we're going to pray, but we'll make a quick announcement because I want this to be on our video as well. Uh, next week, we will start Jesus in Genesis. Now that we've finished the book of Romans, we're just going to go through the book of Genesis, looking at pictures of Christ, types of Christ, um, answering tough questions that come up when you try to dig into these issues. We're not going to do a verse-by-verse study through the whole book. I'm not going to try to handle all the controversy in Genesis. We're specifically looking at Jesus in Genesis in light of the idea that, um, that all scripture ultimately speaks of him. So that'll be fun. That'll be exciting. And I'm really looking forward to getting to it. It'll be uh, several weeks of just taking our time, working through Genesis, looking for Jesus, and uh, trying to be... Um, trying to change the way that we read the Old Testament so that we can thoughtfully and carefully find the things that God has, has placed there for us. Yeah. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your glory, Lord, your goodness, your love, your kindness, and even your wrath because it is right and it is proper and true. Thank you for the incredible philosophy, um, doctrine, encouragement, rebuke, all these things that we get out of the book of Romans that we've been studying for this time. We pray, Lord, that next time we read it, we would, we would just pick up where we've left off and we would get even more. We know we have not exhausted your word, but we have definitely scratched the surface and it's been beautiful. And so, Lord, we just thank you for this incredible, uh, incredible time, this incredible book. We pray as we get ready to study Genesis that you give us great wisdom and insight and you'd reveal Christ to us more and more in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.